Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2. That will be our text this morning. But as you go there, I have a question for you. Um, have you ever in preaching, you, you've been here on a Sunday or maybe listened to uh, you know, a study or a sermon. Have you ever heard an illustration so epic, so vivid, so colorful in its details that the illustration actually uh, distracts from the main point or eclipses the main point. Now, I'm sure I have done that at times, but here's what I'll tell you. The Apostle Paul does that in our text this morning. Uh, so epic is his illustration about the incarnational beauty and glory of Jesus Christ that it would be easy for us to miss the point of this passage, which is on humility. And so... Uh, as a sanctified excuse for any time that has happened in my own teaching, let's look at uh, let's look at Philippians chapter two. Perhaps the most explicit teaching on the incarnation in Scripture, tracing the Son's condescension in life, death uh, for all of mankind, embodying really the truth of Proverbs fifteen thirty three, which says, "Before honor comes what humility." It embodies, this text embodies this principle. Why don't we read it together? Go to Philippians 2, and we will kind of set the context a little bit, but having chosen this passage, we are in a, a, a section on humility, and uh, the church has been charged with that, uh, that duty in verses 1 to 5, um, 1 to 4 rather, and then it says in verse 5, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. On a cross. This rich incarnational text is again not about the incarnation. This text is not sitting in your lap for the purpose of merely understanding Christology. It is about our unity, our unity in service to one another. And Jesus is lifted up in a Philippians chapter 2 as an epic illustration to serve that point. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, we read through verse 8, but verse 9 to 11 uh, records the super exaltation of the Lord after his lowliness in humble incarnation. It's probably the crown jewel of Christology in this Philippian letter of joy. And by the way, those twin themes of joy and unity in the body, they run like train tracks throughout this short letter. And this is, a, this is a letter filled with many favorite verses. Just look at your own Bible. You maybe have underlined verses in Philippians as you flip through those four short chapters, many memorable texts, many favorite texts. And yet I think as we come to this passage itself, it is the sort of matchless high point of the example of our Lord Jesus in Unity and humility. And, and because this theological water is so deep, let me just remind us that the theme is unity in chapter 2. Verse 1 to 4 unpack really an appeal, a Pauline request or appeal for unity. You know, the Philippian church, uh, I, I, we've heard it said before that there wasn't any major problem with the Philippian church. Beloved, that's not true. 
there was, a, there was a threat of disunity that lurked at the elbow to overtake this church. And that's true in every age. This is a serious issue that Paul begins to teach on in chapter 2. The, the challenge of disunity. And, and Jesus wants unity in his church. And the way that we weave it into our church is through the fabric of humility. This is important. So there, there's a connection between the charge for unity in the body and where Paul goes when he talks about humility. So unity and humility are related. And the way that we functionally, practically cultivate unity within a church body, within a family, is by humble Others-centered service. Let me say that again, because that's where he goes in this text. The way to functionally cultivate unity, which is in verses 1 through 4, the charge, have this same mind. I I appeal to you that you would uh, agree, be like-minded with one another. The way to practically cultivate that unity is by humble, others-centered service. Look at this appeal. Verse 2 of chapter says, make my joy complete by making, uh, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do you see all that unity language? Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but rather with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. So here in verses 1 to 4, Paul states his point. An appeal for unity functionally pursued by the outworking of humility. But then in verses 5 to 8, our passage this morning, he does not state his point, but he illustrates it with three expressions of Jesus' humble service. Three glory-saturated expressions of Jesus as the model of ultimate humility and service. But before we get there, look at verse 5. Verse 5 is really kind of a, a hinge verse. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among you, some of your translations say. Have this attitude. Think this way, Paul is saying. It means to give thought or concern, careful, intentional, ongoing consideration to this attitude. And it really always goes back to attitude, doesn't it? Romans 12.2 says that the transformed life, be transformed, Romans 12.2, is accomplished how? By the renewing of one's mind, the renewing of our thinking. And so the natural question as we look at this verse, have this mind among you, is, well, which mind, Paul? Which mindset? Think which way? And the answer is, of course, the attitude of humility and other-centeredness that he stated in verse 3 and 4, and that he will now illustrate in verses 6 to 8. So verse 5 is a hinge verse that moves from exhortation to illustration and that moves both backwards and forwards. It's a hinge in the text. Now, before we look at these unforgettable expressions of humility, notice one other thing with me in verse 5. Look at it. Uh, Where are we to discharge this duty of others-centered service and humility? Have this mind where? Among yourselves. Look at those funny people in the seat pod next to you. Um, yeah, look, look, or in your same seat pod. Um, uh, 
This is how we are to relate as brothers and sisters at UBC. Within our relationships in the body of Christ. Within our one another ministry. Within our discipleship uh, of those within this room. Within this church. And so with all of that in our minds, we consider in this text three unforgettable expressions of humility. Three phases really of descending humility. And if you are using an outline or taking notes, they are, number one, the humility of his attitude in heaven, verse 6. Number two, the humility of his incarnation on earth, verse 7. And number three, the humility of his obedience unto death on a cross, verse 8. So let's look at these. Verse 6 says, Have this mind that, was, that is yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is the humility of Jesus' attitude in heaven. The humility of his attitude in heaven. Verse 6 travels all the way back to eternity past where Jesus continually shared the divine essence of Yahweh. Perhaps you know this, that Jesus, the God-man, when he came to earth via the virgin birth, did not come into existence at that time. But in his pre-incarnate state, always existed eternally. Look at verse 6. This is a fascinating verse. Not only does Paul use a unique verb of being... Uh, who was in the form of God. That Greek verb uh, implies continuance of previous existence. Not only does he highlight the total equality of Jesus and the Father with that word equality, it's the word isos from which we get isosceles triangle. You remember that from geometry? An isosceles triangle has two identical sides. Not only does he do those things, but he uses an important phrase that we want to think carefully about. Look at verse 6. It says that he was in the form of God. Do you see that phrase in your Bible? This is important. If you hold an NIV in your lap, it says, who being in very nature God. And that's a good translation. The NIV has translated that phrase, morphe theu, morphe, form of God, form of God. The NIV has translated that for us, but we need to think carefully about what this phrase, form of God, means. Because when you and I use the word form, we often refer to the outer appearance of something. But this Greek word, morphe, refers to the inner essence. Now think about it. Jesus uh, himself teaches that Yahweh is, John 4, 24, spirit. God is spirit, Jesus teaches us. 1 Timothy 6, 16 makes it clear that God is invisible. He cannot be seen. And so rather than outward appearance, Jesus is the morphe, the form of God, in the sense that he shares the inner essence of full deity. Just look at verse 7. Verse 7 makes this clear. When verse 7 says that he emptied himself, taking the morphe, the form of a bondservant, what's that saying? Is that saying that Jesus wore the mask of a servant? He pretended to be a servant, but he wasn't really. He was a servant on the outside. He looked like a servant, but he wasn't. No, no. Jesus embraced the inner character and, uh, and uh, existence of a servant to the highest expression. So when we, when we think about this, the, the scriptures make it you know, unmistakably clear that Jesus is God. Full shared deity of Yahweh. Uh, the, the book of John uses this phrase, son of God, which is a title of deity. 
Jesus and God are used interchangeably in a number of texts. Colossians 1 speaks of Jesus as the Lord and creator of all things. In Luke 5.20, Jesus forgives sins. In Matthew 28.17, Jesus receives worship. All of these are things that only God can do. And perhaps one of the most uh, timely texts for us to consider, why don't you just flip backwards with me to John chapter 1. And we will look at the book of John from a couple angles this morning. But John chapter 1, these are familiar words no doubt where we see in John's gospel account that he begins not with Jesus' ministry, not with Jesus' birth, but in eternity past. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God, and all things came to being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. I've shared this with you before, but there are five arguments for Jesus' deity in those three verses. Number one, Jesus is divine by title. He is the Word of God. Secondly, He is divine by relationship. It says that the Word was with God. And there's a beautiful word picture in the Greek. It's it's an idea of someone in face-to-face relationship. So Jesus is divine by title. He is divine by relationship. He's divine by direct statement. The, the word was what? God. Number four, he's divine by chronology. In the beginning, hearkening back all the way to Genesis 1. And fifth, he is divine by creation. He made all things, verse 3. So the question is, what did Jesus, being in very nature God, sharing in the complete equality of the divine essence, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do with that equality? Philippians chapter 2, go back there. Answer, even while ruling in majesty, governing creation, receiving the worship of angels, reigning in the triune glory of eternal communion, he did not Count that equality is something to be grasped. He did not regard it. He did not consider it ground to make selfish advantage of his position. And the point is that Christ, he did not look at heaven's, you know, splendors and glories and reward. And then look over here at the, at the sacrifice and the lowliness of humanity's rescue mission only to clutch more tightly to his riches and privileges. On the contrary, He exercised the humility, friends, of open-handedness. Of open-handedness. A loose grip on his rights and privileges. You know, we we, as Americans, we love our rights. (laughs) Right? And let let me tell you something. You know what we have? We have have no rights. Uh, You know what our rights are? We have the right to be dog catcher. I mean, think about it. Uh, we, we We are created beings who take in every breath live on borrowed time, we owe our life breath to another. We don't have, we don't have any, look, we don't have rights. We don't want what we deserve. We don't want justice. We want the mercy and grace of God, right? And yet Jesus, who does have every right as creator, redeemer, exalted God, he held open hands. Driven by love, he humbly accepted the incarnational mission, renouncing heaven's glories, taking on human weakness to serve. And so the question is, don't get lost in just the Christology. The question is, ethically, in our life, what about us? 
in considering others' needs, do we insist on our own rights? Uh, Our right to privacy. Our right to convenience. Think about this, friends. Is our service to others in the body, is it obvious sacrifice? Think about, you know, hospitality in a busy week or cleaning the church on a Saturday. Discipling a needy person. Ask yourself, how do you respond to needy people? We're all needy people, right? My my, my heart is challenged by this. I I hope that yours is too. We could list arguments, all of the good reasons that that we could list for not serving. Does your mind go there? For good reasons for not caring, for not counting others as more significant than ourselves. And let me just tell you something. Jesus, he wasn't like that. Oh, what a challenging example. You look at verse 3 of Philippians 2, that rivalry and competition, that's not like Jesus. You look at the seeking of our own interests, verse 4, that's not like Jesus. And so, friends, the mind of Christ is not to use what we have as a stepping stone towards greater glory and more significance and more importance. It is not to take what is best and what is most desired for self, but to freely forego that in this self-humbling, self-denial and service to others. So this is first the humility of Jesus' attitude in heaven. Secondly, and this is rich stuff, look at verse 7. We see the humility of his incarnation on earth. So he didn't grasp those privileges, but, verse 7, contrast, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, I want to spend some significant time in this verse, a rich verse of Scripture. Um, He didn't do negatively that clutching of verse 6. He did positively empty himself. And so we see, secondly, the humility of his incarnation on earth. This deals, of course, with God becoming a man. In the beginning, John 1.1 was the Word. But that Word, John 1.14, became flesh. That's right. God with us. But as we look at verse 7, we need to be precise. We need to be careful because in entering true humanity, Jesus is not ceasing to retain true deity. He still possesses all the attributes, all the glory of the divine nature. He did not, as some suggest, empty himself of deity or pour out his deity. No, he did not. That would imply that Christ, the God-man, was not fully and truly God. And here's the implication. If he is not fully and truly God, he cannot what? He cannot save us. He cannot save us from our sins. And so this is not Jesus emptying himself of deity or pouring out his deity. And the confusion around this verse, historically and theologically, deals with this little verb, he emptied. Do you see it? Verse 7, he emptied himself. Again, some of your translations are going to translate this differently. But rather than a pouring out or a divesting of divine nature, this word essentially means to debase, to make oneself low. He emptied himself. That's why the NIV translates it, he made himself nothing. That's why if you're reading the King James, it says he made himself of no reputation. That's the same verb, and that's a good translation. He made himself nothing to debase, to make low. Now, it's fascinating to note, friends, that the very grammar of verse 7, stay with me, the grammar uh, in verse 7 
explains and defines this emptying for us. What do I mean? Let me explain this. He emptied himself is the main verb. Okay? Subjects do verbs. He, Jesus, emptied himself. That's the main verb in this sentence. But there are little helping verbs. In grammar school, you learned about them. They're called participles, and they are ing verbs. Uh, and they explain or they modify the main verb. Okay? So we actually have a definition of what this emptying is in the ing verbs. It's not a pouring out, but a, what does your Bible say? taking on, a taking up of humanity. And so the incarnation, as Bruce Ware has so well put it, is not a subtraction of deity, but an addition of humanity. It's a lowering by addition. (laughs) Right? So you say, okay, that's a little confusing. It's not the emptying of deity. What is this self-emptying? What is this humbling? Well, let's give six answers to that question. I know that's a lot, but this is important. This is good stuff. So six statements to answer that question. What is going on in verse 7? We don't want to be heretics. Do you want to be a heretic? I don't. It's easy to be a heretic in this passage. Jesus is not emptying himself of his divine nature. What is he doing? What is going on here? Let's look at six statements of what happens as Jesus emptied himself. Number one, Jesus left the throne room of heavenly worship. When he emptied himself, he left the throne room of heavenly worship. Just think of that, my friends. From creation's beginning, countless myriads of glorious beings continually worshipped the sun for thousands of years before there was time, really, in perfect heavenly praise. Imagine the beauty of of, of that worship, their song, that adoring worship. And Jesus, in contemplating all of that rightful honor, left the royal court, the court from which Isaiah 6 records a song of sea Ceaseless praise, holy, 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 cry the seraphim over and over again. And now I ask you, I ask myself, in our pursuit of humility and unity, do we leave the place or the role or the ministry of recognition and appreciation in order to serve? Do we clamor for credit? or visibility, or splendor in the eyes of men, or in this Christ-like paradoxical lowliness. Forgo it, because verse 3 says we're concerned with the needs of others as greater than our own. First, Jesus left the throne room of heavenly worship. Secondly, Jesus allowed his divine glory to be veiled. He allowed his divine glory to be veiled. Now, again, he possessed that eternal glory of Yahweh, but he did not express it. It was veiled. Go with me to John 17 to see something uh, of this. Backwards to the Gospel of John a second time. And maybe keep your finger in John 17 as we just look at a couple things. You guys know this. I love John 17. Um, John 17, Jesus opens up his heart to the Father. Deity communing with deity, taking us into the very mind and life of the triune God. And verse uh, verse 4 of chapter 17 says, 
I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before the foundation of the world. You see, Jesus allowed the radiance of his glory to be tempered, to be misunderstood, to be veiled. He desired its restoration in this final night before his crucifixion. And as John Calvin writes, quote, Christ indeed could not divest himself of the Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time that it might not be seen under the weakness of flesh. Hence he laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. That's right. Again, consider, are we ready to have our interests, our position, our gifts, our significance eclipsed in our pursuit of the attention and interest of others? Our position, our gifts, our significance veiled. Do we rejoice in the strengths, in the abilities, in the opportunities of others? It's been argued that the hardest instrument to play is what? You guys have heard this. Second fiddle. <laughs> right? Why? Because we're, we're glory junkies. Uh, too often we're glory hounds wanting the spotlight, wanting our way, straining unity in the process. And so Jesus... Models to us, the Holy Spirit challenges us in this text towards humility. Number one, he left the throne room of heavenly worship. Secondly, Jesus allowed his divine glory to be veiled. Third, he left that unique face-to-face -face fellowship with the Father. He left unique face-to-face -face fellowship to, with the Father. Now, this is mind-blowing because Jesus' relationship with the Father as a man was perfect. And yet it was, it was tempered. It was lessened. It was mediated through the weakness of humanity. That is my, and he's praying for it to be restored in John 17. We just saw that in verse 5. Look at verse 24. John 17, uh, 24 says... Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now let me just flush this out for you borrowing some language from theologian A.W. Pink. Let me paint a picture for you. There was a time, friends, if time it could be called, when God in the unity of his nature dwelt all alone. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, John 1.1 1, 1 was the Word, and the Word was, remember, with God. Face-to-face -face relationship. Pink says, there was no heaven where His glory is now particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage His attention. There were no angels to proclaim His praises. No universe to be upheld by the Word of His power. There was nothing. No one but God. And that not for a day, a year, or an age, but from everlasting. During a past eternity, God was alone. Self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. Sharing within himself 
all the relational beauties of endless pure love, perfect fellowship, perfect joy, perfect relational humility and care within the triune glories. In other words, what I'm saying is that there was a distinct glory that the Son possessed from before the foundation of the world. And and follow this with me. It was not primarily the glory of enthroned sovereignty. It was before there was any creation to rule. Rather, this was a, a fellowship, relational glory, a limitless harmony and unity and shared love within the Godhead, a fellowship glory that was not lessened and yet it was mediated through humanity as Jesus came to live as one of us. And so third, he left that unique face-to-face fellowship. He prayed, desiring and anticipating its renewal in John 17. Fourth, what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Number four, he gave up the independent use of some of his divine attributes. This is sort of a bookish statement, but this is, uh, this is how we ought to understand the incarnation. He did not give up divine attributes. He gave up the independent use. That's a theologically precise way of speaking about the incarnation. So the son's emptying of himself is not a loss of deity, but the surrender of using, uh, of making independent use of those attributes. Jesus, uh, of course, taught and asserted his full deity, but he also said, John 5.30, I can do nothing of my own initiative. I do not seek my own will, but the will of who? My Father who sent me. And so the mind-bending truth, beloved, is that while he did not stop being omniscient, omnipotent, immutable, instead of independently exercising those majestic rights, he limited the use of those attributes during his life and ministry. What a model of humility. But there's more. Let me take you into the details of the text here with a fifth argument. Number five, he took the status of a lowly bond slave. What does it mean that he emptied himself? He took the status of a lowly bond slave. Most of us are offended by taking the low position, not Jesus. Look at how the text defines this emptying. So uh, going back to Philippians 2, it says, verse 7, he emptied himself, main verb, taking, participle, taking the form of a bondservant. Okay, this is the uh, this is the, uh, one of the aspects describing, explaining what this emptying is. It is a taking up of uh, being a bondservant. And uh, it's a subtraction by addition. And so he takes up the humility of servanthood. Literally uh, a slave. Now just as we said in verse 6 that the form of God was the inner character of deity so when it says in verse 7 that he took the form of a servant it means that Jesus embodied the very inner essence of servanthood and we're familiar with this truth the son of man did not come to be served but what to serve and to give to give his life as a ransom for many And we know this. All through Jesus' ministry, he gave, he gave, he gave. I mentioned last week there was a time when he was so exhausted from serving that he was sound asleep during a boat-sinking emergency. (laughs) There was another uh, occasion where a woman who was hemorrhaging blood touched Jesus. Do you guys remember this? 
she, she said, oh, if I can only get to the hem of his garment and touch him. And Jesus, he, he, he knew that someone had touched him. And he said, he looked around and he said, who touched me? For he knew that power went out of him. Now, but, but did you know this? The, the disciples, they respond. Have you ever observed this detail? They respond, Lord, are you kidding me? How can you ask who touched you? Because there were always people clamoring at Jesus and touch, the, the, the language uses the crowds pressing on him. And so everywhere he went, there was people interrupting him and touching him. And Jesus, he served and he served and he gave and he gave and he gave. One of the most powerful examples, friends, is in John 13, where on the night before his uh, death, the disciples are jockeying for who's going to be, you know, first in the kingdom. And they're all so busy that... The, that they don't notice until Jesus is right in front of them with the serving towel to wash their icky feet. You remember that? He stooped to serve. And this is vital, not only to understanding Paul's Christology, but to get his point about humility. Ministry, friends, is service. Isn't that challenging? You think about that. What, what, what are the barriers that hinder service ministry today? Now, there might be various circumstances that make some aspects of service difficult, but think about the barriers in our lives. Values of convenience, privacy, fear, busyness, assuming it's someone else's job. You know, we are just the right size of a church. We're big enough that we have multiple staff, but there are a lot of needs. It would be easy to say, hey, someone else can do that. That's someone else's job. That's, that's Pastor Dan's job. Right? Um, you know, assuming that uh, it's someone else's job. How about this? This is the, at the heart of our text. Refusing to take the lower role. Jesus, king of kings, equal with God, he stooped to serve. He emptied himself, taking the form of the servant. And when Paul tells us to have this mind among us, it's a call to consider no job, no task, no ministry to be beneath us. If we have the attitude of, hey, I'm too busy. I'm too important. That's too in inconvenient for me. Well, we have a problem. But you know as well as I. We're, we're, far, we're far too sophisticated in our you know, self-justifications to ever say, I'm, th that's too inconvenient for me. I'm too important for that job, for that ministry. I don't know if you've seen my last name. We're, we're more sophisticated than that, aren't we? <laughs> um, and, and so this is a challenge to all of us that, to learn from our humble Lord Jesus who served. There's a sixth argument that I want to mention Number one, he left the throne room of heavenly worship. Number two, he allowed his divine glory to be veiled. Number three, he left unique face-to-face -face fellowship with the Father. Number four, he gave up the independent use, not the possession, but the expression of some of his divine attributes. Number five, he took the status of a lonely bond slave. And number six, now, he entered into genuine humanity. This is where we were last week, considering... Uh, the high priest who can sympathize with us in every way. He entered into genuine humanity. He, ma he made himself low by being made, the text says, in the likeness of men. That means the weakness and the limitations of humanity. Let me tell you something. Jesus is not Clark Kent. <laughs> He's not pretending to be a normal man when in reality he is in fact Superman. Right? He's actually one of us through and through. He's not God in a human body. He's not half God, half man. He was, Hebrews 2.17, made like his brothers in every respect and yet without sin. It was what we studied last week, this high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. 
Jesus indeed had a human body. He was born like all babies. And I listened to a beautiful song this morning. It just came up as I was praying and reviewing my notes. Uh, it's, a, it's a new song. I don't even remember how low our Redeemer came, something like that. It's, it's one of these new uh, songs from Sovereign Grace. It's a Christmas album. And, and in the lyrics of this song, it was talking about while the sheep and cattle load in the morning, uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the birth of our Lord Jesus, he, he was unable to speak. He was unable to talk. He stumbled on the ground that he created as he learned to walk. Luke 2.40 says he began to grow like all children. He felt the pangs of hunger, Matthew 4. He knew exhaustion, stress, the need for sleep, the reality of weakness and pain in the body. Uh, about a year ago, I hurt, uh, I hurt my legs, both of them, um, kind of in my knees. And uh, I was hiking, and uh, for a period of time, I was unsure if, uh, if I would recover and um, I, I was still able to do most of my work, but I, and I could stand and I could sit, but I couldn't really move very well uh, for, for several months last year um, without pain. And I, I wondered, is this going to be maybe kind of a, a long-term reality? And it was, it was powerful just to contemplate Jesus knows, Jesus, Jesus understands weakness and limitation physically. And yet it's not just that. He had a human mind. Hebrews 5.8 says he learned obedience through suffering. You say, did Jesus possess divine omniscience or did he grow in wisdom and learning? Yes. He had human emotions. Awe at the centurion's faith. Sorrow at the tomb of Lazarus. Anger at the hard-hearted Pharisees. Most commonly as he ministered among the weakness of humanity, he had compassion. And so you see, beloved, he took on all the frailties, limitations, heartaches that were a result of the fall. And so we have these sort of six statements that we've thought through what is involved in this emptying. And yet Paul is not finished. The descent of humility, lower, 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 is continuing in this text. Okay, so it starts, he did not grasp. He, uh, the, the, the stairs are going down. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant down. He became a man. Down. And now, verse 8, we see not only the humility of his attitude in heaven, not only the humility of his incarnation on earth, but third, the humility of his obedience unto death on a cross. The humility of Jesus' obedience unto death on a cross. Look at what the text says. It says, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we've considered a shocking descent, but verse 8 takes us lower. And it's a reminder. Look at the language. Verse 8 says he, that he humbled himself. John 10 is a similar statement. John 10, 17. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. He humbled himself. But you see the implication for us. We should take the first move in serving one another. We should freely choose to serve. Freely choose to protect the unity uh, of the... Of the, uh, of, the, of the church at UBC. The divine son became not just a man, but an obedient man unto death. Think about this. The author of life submitted to death. The sinless one submitted to sin's curse. Um, have you ever been to an open casket funeral? I have. And it's a... It's, it's a... It's a interesting powerful, eerie kind of thing. 
to look at a dead body um, and just think, there is not life in that, that dead body. And it just blows my mind to think, Jesus, who created life, he experienced that. John 1 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus experienced flatline. That is wild. But look at the text. It's not as though Jesus died peacefully in his sleep. He didn't die instantaneously in a car crash. No, no. He died the death of the Roman cross. And one commentator said, quote, The cross displayed the lowest depths of human depravity and cruelty, exhibiting the most brutal form of sadistic torture and execution ever invented by malicious human minds, end quote. It was an excruciating, degrading death, so loathsome that it was forbidden for, for Roman citizens. It was reserved for slaves, for criminals, uh, and really, those who were, uh, who were crucified were publicly exposed, often hung naked, and viewed as an enemy of the state. And so uh, you have this, this, this death by crucifixion. The crucified often died a slow death, really, of suffocation under the weight of their own body being pulled down by gravity. As the lungs were hyperextended, they, the, the crucified would uh, seek to pull themselves up on the cross... Um, pulling on the, the nails through the hands and scraping the already torn back uh, against the wood of the cross. It was, a, it was vicious and degrading by design. And yet I want to remind us this morning, friends, that far worse and far more low than the physical pain and shame and shock of the cross was the divine wrath and judgment that awaited our Lord Jesus at the end of the tunnel. Galatians 3, let me just read this to you. Galatians 3 speaks of this, 3.10 to 13. Uh, it says, For as many are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, uh, uh, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by faith. And then verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The beloved, exalted, majestic Lord Jesus despised and cursed under divine judgment. On that cross, friends, he suffered the full curse of the law. On that cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us. On that cross, he paid the death penalty. On that cross, the Son experienced for the first time in all eternity the separation of the Father's love as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is the bottom. This is the lowest Step The low point, the precious eternal Son of God, crushed for our iniquity, cursed and damned by the Father for our crimes. Humanity had sinned, humanity had to pay. And it was the unstoppable power and example of humility that brought our Lord Jesus from the heights of glory to the pit of shame and condemnation. And I ask in closing, if He humbled Himself that way, how can we not? 
How can we be unwilling to serve? What a powerful argument and illustration Paul unfolds here. This is the mindset of humble service. This Holy Spirit epic illustration is a call to unifying humility. This is the call of every disciple, every believer at UBC. We must clothe ourselves with the common rags of servanthood, as one commentator put it. And no greater model can be given than our text this morning. So I ask in closing, how about you? Are you holding back in any way your your love, your service to others? Are you hindered by selfishness or inconvenience within this community? Rather, God desires us to discharge this duty to one another in this body. Again, look around at those funny faces. Um, We are to be united to one another in love and in encouragement. And may the matchless example of our Lord Jesus stir up humility and diligence, really, to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Is there anyone in this room who is themselves holding back from the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus? Anyone among us who is visiting, who's with us this morning, but you don't know Christ? You don't know not only his powerful example, but his saving, redeeming, forgiving, cleansing grace. I would urge you, come. If you do not have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, your own life, your own soul, joined to him by grace alone, through faith alone, friend, come. Come to Jesus. Receive his kindness Receive his mercy so that you might follow in his steps and that he might be your God, your savior, your king, your master. Because if you do not have Jesus, you have no armament to face the judgment of God on that last day. But if you would come to him, come to God on God's terms, he will give you pardon. He will give you rescue. He will give you cleansing. He will give you hope. Let's pray.